Good afternoon, everyone. Welcome to the Midtown Scholar Bookstore. My name is Alex Brubaker. Uh, we're really happy you're here on this uh, pretty nice Saturday, actually. Um, before we begin, I'd like to give a quick shout out to our co-sponsor for this afternoon's event, um, the Millworks. They're our neighbors right across the street. Is everyone familiar with the Millworks? Okay, great, awesome, yes. So I don't need to sell them too much, um, but it does surprise me. Every now and then we get people coming in, maybe out of towners or maybe across the river that want a dinner recommendation. They come into the bookstore and man, we are on top of it to send them to the Millworks. Great food, great beer. Um, they've got great artist studios. Um, so um, uh, we're gonna be talking about food a lot in the next hour. So we recommend and encourage you to check out the Millworks after this. I know I'm going over there, Dan's going over there. So it's gonna be a lot of fun. Um, so again, huge thank you to the Millworks. Uh, for coming on board to co-sponsor this event. If this is your first time at one of our events, we always encourage taking an events newsletter. We've got a lot of interesting author events coming up in the next month, um, so we'd love to see you back at uh, one of our events. Now on to the main show. We're thrilled to welcome author Daniel Stone to Harrisburg as he presents his new book, The Food Explorer, The True Adventures of the Globe-Trotting Botanist Who Transformed What America Eats, uh, which is now in paperback. And a little bit about Dan. Uh, Daniel Stone is a writer on environmental science, agriculture, and botany in Washington, D.C. He writes for National Geographic and is a former White House correspondent for Newsweek and The Daily Beast. He has written for Time Magazine, The Washington Post, Vice, and Literary Hub. He teaches environmental policy at Johns Hopkins University. In his new book, The Food Explorer, Stone brings to life the adventures of David Fairchild a late 19th century food explorer who traveled the globe and introduced diverse crops uh, to the American plate. Through Fairchild, America transformed into the most diverse food system ever created. It's been called a must read for foodies and fascinating by the New York Times book review. So without further ado, please join me in giving a warm Harrisburg welcome to Daniel Stone. Thank you, Alex. Thank you, all of you. Thanks for having me, and thanks for coming. Uh, that's, that's a bonus. To be in a great bookstore um, is a real treat and pleasure. One thing they tell you when you're going to write a book is that it's going to be really hard and it's going to take a long time. But what they don't tell you is that when you finish writing it, you get to go around and talk to people and share the story of the book and hear, hear other people's stories. And it's, it's really a nice experience and a, a pleasure to be here in Harrisburg. I will bend your ear tonight for about 30, 35 minutes. I'd love to tell you some stories from my research and from the book. Um, this is a book about a, I always say, a food spy for the US government. This was a man who traveled on assignment for the USDA in search of novel plants and foods and crops that can be economically useful, right? Transform mainly the center of the country, the places where people were growing mostly the same crops for almost all of the time that America had been a country. And because everyone was growing the same thing, no one was making much money. So David Fairchild, uh, by the way, before this book, before you had heard of this book or any of the coverage about it, who here had heard of David Fairchild? Almost none. Oh, you had one, yeah. We'll, we'll get to that in a moment, why that might be. But um, I argue in the book, and I, I use the examples of his stories and his introductions to really demonstrate how transformative uh, his work was and his travels were. Fairchild, like I mentioned, was a young boy from Kansas. Uh, he grew up uh, on the campus of Kansas State University. His father was the president. And he was a young boy who, like most before him, didn't have much opportunity, didn't get a chance to go many places. And it was really one visiting scientist, a man named Alfred Russell Wallace, who was one of the uh, the foundational scholars of the theory of natural selection, right there with Charles Darwin. The two of them were developing this theory at the exact same time. Darwin was in the Galapagos and Wallace was in the Malay Archipelago near Indonesia and Malaysia. And Wallace comes to Kansas and he meets young David Fairchild, who's about 10 years old. And to Fairchild, this is sort of like meeting an astronaut, right? It's like meeting someone who has been somewhere you could never even dream of traveling. Uh, growing up in, in Kansas. And he, he really enchants Fairchild with this view of the tropics, this view of the other side of the world, and what is possible with travel, right? And that's transformative for any of us, right? But certainly for a young boy, this is about 1879, right? He's 10 years old. 
Flash forward, Fairchild has an opportunity as a young junior scientist with the USDA, he goes to Washington, uh, an opportunity to travel. His first time to go somewhere, and it's to Italy. And it's on that trip to Italy that he has another transformative experience for himself. And it's one of those kind of bolts of luck that, that happens, I think, to many of us in our lives a few times, that's it. And if you're paying attention, it could transform your whole life. And if you're not, it's just gone, right? It just passes, didn't even notice. And on this boat to Italy, Fairchild meets a fabulously wealthy, globe-trotting, uh, millionaire playboy bachelor, right? A man who has traveled around the world more than a dozen times. He lives on steamships, and he's independently wealthy beyond any means. And uh, he just continues in motion. And this man, his name is Barbara Lathrop, and he sees in young David Fairchild scientific promise. The same thing Alfred Russell Wallace saw in Fairchild, but now Fairchild is a young man, right? He has this scientific intrigue. He's traveling for the first time. And Barbara Lathrop says, I want to invest in you. I want to invest in the future work you're going to do as a scientist and for the U.S. So I want to give you $1,000. Right, this is 1894. A thousand dollars is about $25,000 now, right? No one's ever offered me that much just to take as you go, right? But that's sort of the deal. He says, take it, travel, see where you go, and I think you'll do great things, right? And that's transformative to Fairchild. The two of them together kind of form this loose partnership along those lines. Fairchild has the brains and the the scientific know-how and the questions to ask, and Lathrop has the means to keep, keep them in motion, and they, they form this partnership that, that carries them about 15 years uh, traveling together. Fairchild has many adventures on his own also. As I mentioned, he was a scientist with the USDA, and the Department of Ag was not you know, a, a very um, nimble department, certainly in the 1880s and 90s. It had only been around for a few decades. Actually, the found founding, the person who founded the U.S. Department of Ag, most people don't know, Abraham Lincoln, uh, the father of American organized ag policy. Um, and Fairchild comes about 30 years later, and he's working for this department that really struggles from relevance, right? No one knows what, what is the role of a Department of Agriculture, especially when so many people are farmers outside of Washington, right? What can Washington do to help farmers? And so Fairchild, in his association with the millionaire, Barbara Lathrop, and his work with the USDA, he decides that the answer is crop diversity. That if they can go around the world, if they could find new things, if they could introduce them back to the US, get them into the hands of farmers, get them to grow these things, and then market them to people like you and me who buy things and eat things, that that can really transform part of the American economy, and a big part, because most of the labor force are farmers. And so Fairchild does this. He does it in a few different ways. The, actually, the opening scene of the book is his first time doing this, and he's very bad at it, very bad. He is sent uh, by the USDA to go to Corsica, the small French island in the Mediterranean that grows the best citron in the world. Citron is a type of citrus fruit, looks like a kind of a wrinkly lemon. And uh, Corsicans have the best citron ever created, grown, and Fairchild is sent to acquire some of that citron, right, acquire however he needs. And he gets there, and he's a young man, and he's, you know, he feels the, the rush of an assignment for his government. And he goes to the small town on Corsica, and he tries to blend in, but he's got his big Kodak camera with the, the curtain, right, and his big tripod. And he takes a photo. The photo is actually in the book. And immediately after he takes this photo, he is arrested, right? He feels a, an arm on his arm that and a policeman who says, come with me, and he's thrown in jail, and he's interrogated for fear of being a spy, right? Now, he was a spy. I refer to him as a spy because he was in search of agricultural material that could be economically useful, right? Economic secrets. 
They think he's a military spy. But when he makes sort of clear with his bumbling French that he really has no idea what he's doing, they let him go. And when they let him go, he rides his donkey down the mountain. And when he realizes he's no longer being pursued, he darts off into a grove of citron. He takes three cuttings. He takes three fruit. And he sticks the cuttings in potatoes so that they'll be nourished on the ship ride back to the US. And that's really his first brush with success. He gets the job done. Those cuttings make their way to Washington, where they're propagated. They're sent out to citrus growers in California, where they transform the California citrus market in these days before navel oranges really transformed California. Um, I'll tell you a couple other stories. One is uh, I'm sure many of you have heard of or eaten avocados, right? They're sort of having a moment now. Avocados are not native to North America. Um, mostly they're native to Central America. But Fairchild in 1897 was traveling around the coast of South America. And it's during his stay in Chile, in, uh, around Santiago, that he finds the best avocado that he's ever seen. Right, what makes it good? It's got, it's got thick skin. Its flesh is creamier than the stringiness of other avocados. Its stone, its pit is really, it's small relatively. Um, and it grows fairly quickly, right? These are agricultural benefits. So he sends about a thousand of these types of avocados. They don't really have a name. Sends them up to Washington where they again are propagated and sent to avocado growing regions. Florida, Texas, Southern California. That was in about 1897, and it took about two decades. But um, starting in about the early 20s, you have pretty widespread avocado growth, certainly in Southern California, and people who experimented with new types of avocados to try to produce ever better ones, right? Thicker skin, creamier flesh, bigger fruit, smaller pits. And some of th these people were scientists, some were chefs, uh, and some were just you and me, right? People who have gardens, who like growing things, and some live, some die, right? One of these enthusiasts was a postal worker who just grew avocados in his backyard just for fun. Um, and this man uh, eventually sprouted an avocado in his backyard that was even better than earlier varieties. And it's, you know, it, it sprouted straighter, it grew faster, it only took about two seasons to fruit. It's big, you know, flesh, it's big fruit, it's small stone, and it was, you know, the best he had ever seen. And a friend of this man said, you know, you should patent this. And patenting a fruit was, was had never been done. It was very uncommon. It was sort of controversial at the time. Can you even patent something? And he did. He patented it, and that man's name, the letter carrier, uh, was Rudolf Haas. And um, he patented the Haas avocado, uh, in a very, very simple drawing from 1935 uh, that's actually in the book, the drawing that is still exactly what it looks like in the supermarket today. I love just the simple patent that was a descendant of this earlier avocado that Fairchild introduces from Chile. Fairchild goes to Baghdad where he meets with farmers and he talks about some of the crops that could do well in an analogous American region. And he finds that dates, dates are ripe for introduction. Where? Again, Southern California, where you have this arid, dry climate. Right? Anyone who's here been to uh, Palm Springs or Coachella, right? You see date palms and a big date industry. It used to be even bigger. Uh, dates are not native there. And they only exist there because the USDA, through David Fairchild, introduced dates in the early 20th century. And this introduction was so meaningful to that community uh, that about 20 years after that introduction, there was the early starts, the early buds, these suckers of these date trees. And eventually the town, a town just outside of uh, Coachella, uh, renamed itself Mecca, Mecca, California. Right? Mecca in honor of this region of the world that had given them this agricultural bounty. Now, never mind that Baghdad is not that close to Mecca, pretty, pretty different, different countries, but it was sort of enough, you know, it was that, that honest respect 
uh, and appreciation for this gift. Um, Fairchild uh, goes, uh, he picks up some varieties of nectarines outside of Pakistan when he's in the, the Persian Gulf. Um, he picks up varieties of seedless grapes in Italy from a monk just outside of Venice. Um, he really has, you know, many adventures on many, uh, in many different countries. He actually goes to 54 countries, all of them by boat. He is arrested a couple times. He catches disease, he catches typhoid a couple times. He is um, threatened, or maybe just unwelcomed, by uh, groups of people who are unaccustomed to seeing a Westerner, a white man, uh, suspicious of his motives and sees arrows shot and, and people killed at times. But he manages to outrun most of these risks. Um, one of his big and, and kind of his greatest hits and, and what he is, is chiefly uh, influential with were uh, part of this uh, trip he took to Japan in 1901. And he spends an entire summer in Yokohama, Japan, just south of Tokyo. And it's there that he comes across a tree that is stunningly beautiful, right? The Japanese tree known as sakura, right? A cherry blossom tree. And these are beautiful trees, but they are agriculturally useless, right? He's not interested because there's, there's no fruit, right? They're sterile, so they don't actually produce cherries. So he doesn't pick up any cherries, but he does pick up other things in, in Japan, including wasabi as one of his introductions to the U.S. And when he gets back to Washington and he uh, has his own piece of land in Maryland, not far from here in Chevy Chase, just north of D.C., he uh, introduces, he brings over several cherry blossom trees that he imports just for his own property, just to beautify his land. And it's his land that people start to come and notice, especially in the spring, right? These trees that no one's ever seen are beautiful. There's a lot of discussion and debate. This is the early 20th century, the, the time of Teddy Roosevelt. How can we make Washington beautiful, right? Especially down near the, the Washington Monument, the Jefferson Memorial. It's really muddy. There's all these beaches of mud. No one goes down there. How can we beautify it? And some of the people who go see Fairchild's land and Fairchild's trees are dignitaries, right? Members of the government, cabinet secretaries, uh, President Roosevelt, and then President Taft. And they say, you know, they all kind of concoct this plan that say, maybe this is the answer. Maybe this is how we can beautify Washington every spring. And so Fairchild is tasked with arranging this, this gift. There's going to be a gift from the Japanese that the Japanese people were extremely excited about because this is their cultural symbol that's going to be planted in the capital city of a growing superpower, a growing power, we're in a superpower yet, uh, and it was a big compliment. And so Fairchild arranges a gift of about 2,000 trees that are sent over uh, and are received in Washington. And when those trees arrive, um, they are inspected, right? There's a whole team of entomologists who search every tree, and in the, the eagerness of the Japanese gardeners to send over these trees, they were mature trees with long roots. And because the roots were really long, they had soil clinging to them, and they found six varieties of scale insects, four types of fungus, and bacteria in the soil, which is really biologically very dangerous to introduce um, any type of pector, pest or insect that, that can damage a native uh, industry, a native flora. Um, Fairchild tries to salvage all of this. Uh, you know, he promises to comb the roots himself. You know, I will inspect every tree. And he, you know, he was an earnest guy. He was, he was really smart, but he was really earnest. And he said, you know, this was a gift. We, we need to make the best of this. But he was overruled. Um, President Taft ordered that all of the trees be burned. And they were propped up in kind of these big triangles, and they were all lit a fire. There's a photo um, that was taken by a New York Times photographer. The story was written on the front page of the Times the next day that all these trees were burned. It was, it was very sloppy. It was very uh, embarrassing. Right? Could have been handled a lot better. 
And Fairchild, you know, feels terrible about all this. Certainly he was one of the, you know, he was at the center of the, the arbiter of, of getting these trees over. And he goes to apologize to the Japanese ambassador and says, I am so sorry. We could have handled this so much better. And to everyone's surprise, the Japanese ambassador says, no, we are sorry. You know, we sent you a faulty gift. Of course you had to burn them. What choice did you have? And because of that, that sense of cultural humility on both sides, the Japanese agreed to a second shipment of trees, 3,000-ish this time. They are grown in what's known as virgin soil uh, in Japan. I, I don't know what that is. I don't think it exists, but it's clean soil. Uh, and they are sent on a steamer across the Pacific, across uh, the continental U.S., and they are received and inspected in Washington. And it was those 3,000 trees that were planted in 1912 in a small ceremony um, with President Taft, Helen Taft, a couple dignitaries, uh, and David Fairchild. Um, very small non-public ceremony for those first trees. Now those, those trees um, are still growing today, but the actual trees uh, only last about 25 to 30 years. So most of them are propagated, regrown, uh, every quarter century or so, except there are still uh, four original trees that are there. And if any of you go this spring, I think peak bloom, as they call it, is uh, in about three weeks. If any of you are down there, you can see the original trees just by, you know, they're enormous. They look like they've been there for 100 plus years, big trees around. Over time, Fairchild has a, a measure of, of incredible success. And those of you who have the book or have seen the book, in the first two pages, there's a map that I, I call the Fruits of Fairchild. And it's kind of like his greatest hits album, right? He introduced thousands of different seeds and plants. There were some duplicates. There were you know, some that never made it alive. There were probably shipments that never made it off of a steamer, right? But of, we, uh, of, of what we know, there are several thousand different introductions that he makes that are transformative. And I'll just give you an example of one more. He is in Egypt learning about agricultural history in a place where people have farmed for thousands of years. And it's there that he comes across a long fiber variety of cotton, right? Cotton is not native to Egypt. Cotton, the cotton industry in Egypt was really started as a result of the American Civil War which really depressed production in the US, and so Egypt decided it was gonna try to balance and take advantage of that market. And they grow this long fiber variety of cotton that Fairchild sees, and he decides that he's gonna introduce to uh, New Mexico and Arizona, where you can grow it in a similar climate. And that becomes known eventually as Egyptian cotton, some of the finest cotton in the world, certainly the most comfortable. So he wasn't only after foods, um, I guess we could have called the book just The Explorer, right? He was, but he was after anything that could be economically useful. And that map is really a view of all of those industries that were transformed because of these introductions. Now he had a, some failures too. Um, as with anything you know, biological, certainly dealing with plants, he had many failures, uh, just like all of us do in our gardens, right? He loved a fruit called a mangosteen. He thought that was, of anything he had tried, that was the best fruit in the world. Has anyone here tried a mangosteen? One, one person, yeah. It's usually a, a small number of people. Um, a mangosteen is, is not related to a mango at all. It's a small purple fruit. Uh, it's about the size of a fist. And it's got these white wedges inside. And these wedges taste like custard. Um, yeah, it's delicious. And anyone who's been to like Indonesia, Thailand, Vietnam, that's where you get one right off the tree. And uh, I've heard it's delicious. I've never done that there. And he tried to introduce this fruit. And he couldn't. He couldn't get it done. And it, it really speaks to the reason why of the thousands of fruits, millions maybe, that exist in the world, when you go into your Kroger, Publix, or Safeway, there's a, there's a 20 fruits, maybe, 
right? And you could name all of the peppers, zucchinis, onions, you know, potatoes, anything. That's, that's all you get. And why is it those ones and not, you know, the fabulous thing you tried on your vacation to Brazil or the wonderful thing in, in Vietnam that you just, someone handed to you at a market? And the mangosteen tells the answer, right? The mangosteen is, is small and it's got a very thick rind. So it, there's a lot of dead weight, right? You have to ship all that rind, you don't eat it. Right, that's a waste. Those little wedges, the white wedges, are delicious, but they have a little pit inside of them. And so it's, it's a lot of work to get the fruit. Right? It's, it's hard to eat. Um, it ripens really fast. You have about two, maybe three days off of the tree before it's really gone. And so for a tropical fruit, which you can't really grow much tropical fruit in the US, for a tropical fruit, you can't ship it far. And even if you ship it far, it bruises very easily. It's very delicate. So by the time it gets to your supermarket in Harrisburg or anywhere in the US, it's, it's gone it's, or it's, it's ugly, right? And who among us hasn't picked up a fruit, seen a bruise and put it back and picked up another one, right? That's what would happen with the mangosteen. Now, you can get mangosteens in the US now. There are some in... Um, uh, in some of the supermarkets near where I live, down in Virginia, um, they're at some of the Asian supermarkets where they import them somehow, very quickly, from regions that grow them really well. But by the time you get all of those things right, right, you ship the, the thick rind, you, you ship it really fast on a plane, you try to keep it you know, delicate in a, in a carrying case, they're like $15 a pound, right? And that's, yeah, too much. Um, I can't see how it's... it's going to become the next powerhouse fruit. However, Fairchild had another failure uh, that's not as, as sad a story called um, the dwarf pineapple, right? We've all had pineapple. He found a small pineapple, a personal sized pineapple off the coast of, um, of Durban in South Africa. And he thinks that this personal pineapple is gonna transform pineapple, right? Who wouldn't want their own pineapple the way you would, you would have your own apple, right? Just one serving. And he tries to import these, but um, the growers tell him, no, 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 the, the money is in the weight. We want big, big pineapples. And that's why, even in, in my lifetime, I have seen pineapples go from about modest-sized up to like Costco-sized, right? Um, that's because, yeah, the, the, m the bigger they are, the more money you could make growing them. Uh, and so farmers rejected this idea. Um, I have a photo I took on my phone a few uh, months ago. I was at Whole Foods in D.C., uh, and I saw a bin of dwarf pineapples. This was just a few months ago, just like softball-sized pineapples with the big plumage. And I thought, oh my, oh my God, wow, that's amazing. That's, and I was going to buy one. I thought, why not? You know, how, how much closer can I get to Fairchild other than buying? Uh, these pineapples were $5, right, a piece. It's bigger than, more than a big pineapple. And it sort of speaks to that same point, that the powerhouse fruits and vegetables that we eat have the resume, the strength to withstand all of those qualities, how they're grown, how they're shipped, how they're sold, and how they're consumed. And most fruits and vegetables in the world do not have them. I think of the ones in our markets as the 1% of fruits, even though they're probably like the point, you know, the tenth of a percent of the, the top tier of fruits. I will tell two quick stories uh, before, uh, I'd love to take some of your questions. One is about, I mentioned before, the biological risk of this kind of work, right? Here's Fairchild bringing in, you know, fairly unstopped. The, the cherry blossoms were a little different, but, but he's bringing in thousands of varieties of different types of plants from other parts of the world. There's not much biological research on what they're bringing in with them or if there's a potential fungus hiding in one of these crates or an insect that could destroy an entire field of, of chestnuts or, or peaches. And so this becomes sort of a, a running debate between scientists at the USDA. There's Fairchild on one side who's saying, you know, this is important work and this is worth whatever risk that comes with it. You know, there is a bounty out in the world and we can take advantage of it and change our economy, grow ourselves, and build strength if we 
find all of it or find some of it and bring it here, risks be damned. And on the other side, you have a good friend of Fairchild, actually someone who grew up with him in Kansas. They were boyhood friends. And while Fairchild became a botanist for the USDA, this man, his name was Charles Marlatt, he becomes an entomologist for the USDA. He studies insects. And the two of them, you know, this is a friendly debate, but it takes on this sense of growing urgency as uh, time goes on, as we march toward World War I, when we have kind of a growing feeling of, of, of nativism, of this sense of isolationism, of, you know, there's dangerous things out in the world. We have enough here. Let's close our doors, right? Let's close our doors to plants and ideas and even people at times, right? It's a, it's a debate that kind of recurs through history in many countries, right? And it goes with economic cycles. And Fairchild and Marlett have this debate. And Marlett says, it's not worth the risk. It's not, you know, this could be very dangerous and damaging to a proportion that we don't even know. And so why would we, you know, it's not worth introducing one fruit or another fruit if it could damage the whole of American agriculture. And it's kind of this sense of fear that Marlett plays on that really allows him to win. Marlett wins. Um, right around World War I, Marlett prevails, and he convinces Congress to pass a quarantine law. Quarantine restricting which ports agricultural material can come in, how they have to be inspected, how they have to be grown before they're shipped out uh, to experiment stations and shared with farmers. And that doesn't stop Fairchild's work, but it does pose a lot of hurdles, and it just kind of slows everything down. That, um, that quarantine law, passed in 1914, is still the reason why when any of us get on an airplane from a foreign country, you fill out that little form, right? I'm not bringing in fruit. I haven't been on a farm. It's because of those early concerns as a result of, of the reaction to Fairchild's work. Now, Fairchild gets to an age, you know, he, he gets married. He actually marries the daughter of Alexander Graham Bell. So he has this, you know, of all he's done, he, he marries into this great family of science and, and industry and, and money. And um, he has three kids. And he can't really wander or travel as freely as a family man, right? And certainly with all these hurdles with the quarantine. And so he hires three young men to continue this work into the 19-teens. Uh, one of them goes to Guatemala to um, find better avocados. One goes to Russia to find better wheat. And uh, the third one uh, is a man named Frank Meyer, whose job, literally, uh, is to walk across China. Right, this starts in about 1905, and it, he, he travels for more than a decade in China. And Meyer is kind of the perfect guy for this. Right? He's, a, he's an immigrant from Holland to the US. He hardly knows anybody. He loves to walk. He loves to be alone. And he loves plants, right? He's got like the perfect resume for this job. And Fairchild says, you're, you're hired. And he basically wants him to just wander through parts of China where Westerners either don't go or have never been and learn about their agriculture. See what crops are hardy enough that they've been growing them for hundreds of years that could be useful in the US. And Meyer, um, which I know and, and we can tell from the letters that he wrote back and forth to Fairchild at the USDA in Washington, Meyer has these even more harrowing adventures than younger Fairchild did. Meyer, um, he is regularly robbed, he is beaten up, he is also accused of being a spy but with, with violence, he is attacked by wild animals at times, one of my favorite letters of, of Myers, he writes to Fairchild that he arrived at a guest house, a hotel, where it was scrawled on the side of the house in French, house of 1,000 bedbugs, <laughs> right? Which some Westerner, some Frenchman, left for the next Westerner to come see. I always think that's like the world's worst Yelp review, yeah. <laughs> uh, he, uh, 
he he had these adventures and really roamed, you know, far and wide and and always kind of stayed chipper. It was very difficult and he, you know, he he faced some headwinds and and I won't give away the ending of the book, but it's really about Meyer's adventures. Um he had success doing this and despite everything against him, he uh produced this same agricultural bounty of Fairchild. He picked up varieties of persimmons and wild pears that he found. Uh, he introduced varieties of asparagus uh, that we can all thank him for, and soybeans that now cover more of the US than almost any other crop. Right? But it's his most famous find, and famous only because it's the only one named after him. And Meyer sees in a family's doorway a, um, a citrus fruit. Now, all citrus comes from China. All citrus originates in southern and eastern China. All oranges, lemons, grapefruits, limes, pomelos, everything. And so you have more diversity of citrus in China than any other country. And so he's wandering, and he sees in a family's doorway a citrus fruit that's yellow, as yellow as an egg yolk how he describes it, and he tastes it, and it's sweeter than a lemon, and it's more tart than an orange, and it turns out to be some form of natural hybrid between the two, extremely juicy with a thin skin. And he introduces those back to the US where they are grown in uh, the fields of the Central Valley of California, and eventually transform most of Northern California where they grow citrus. And that lemon eventually becomes known as the Meyer lemon after him and becomes not just a lemon that's economically useful, which is the goal, but really culinarily fascinating, right? Uh, Martha Stewart and Alice Waters and Alton Brown, they all have these recipes using Meyer lemons because they're the best lemons. They're also the best to make lemonade with because they're sweet and just the right amount of tart. And all through this, Meyer and Fairchild, you know, they're, they're fairly modest men, right? I asked how many of you have heard of them. Almost no one has, right? And they had done this work that was really influential at a pivotal moment in American history. And they, they kept their egos in check. You know, they didn't, they didn't really think they were changing the world, even though they were, and changing all of our lives even a century later. But Meyer, just once, that I found, uh, had kind of this flash of confidence, right? This flash that maybe what we're doing is going to matter, and it's going to matter for a long time. And in a letter that he wrote to his family back in Holland in 1915, he ended it with, I will be famous one day. Just wait a century or two. <laughs> yeah. Thank you for having me. I'm happy to take some questions. Yeah. If you just want to raise your hand, I'll come around with the mic. Excellent. Yeah. Hi. Hi there. Can you talk about what the American diet was like before all of this exploration? Sure. Um, what was the American diet like? Uh, it was pretty bland and pretty brown. Uh, and by that, I mean there was not a lot of uh, variation from what diet the colonists brought over from England. Now, there's some dispute over exactly what crops were here before that, like what the Native Americans had and grew. But because they were hunter-gatherers a lot longer than in the Eastern Hemisphere where you had big civilizations in Egypt and Mesopotamia, um, you didn't have much formal agriculture in the US. So the colonists bring over, you know, mostly their diets, which is livestock, dairy, a lot of corn, uh, oats, barley, wheat, right? Not a lot of culinary diversity, not a lot of fruits and vegetables. Of the fruits that had been here, you know, certainly apples had been across the US, peaches also. Neither are from North America. Um, apples come from Kazakhstan and uh, peaches from Southwestern Asia. They had been here, but if you were a farmer in Kansas or Missouri or Indiana, you know, anywhere kind of in these big breadbasket states, uh, you didn't have a lot of diversity and you had a lot of frustration because everyone was growing the same thing and flooding the market. 
So the diet was not very varied, and that description of, of bland and brown actually came from one of Fairchild's memoirs that he wrote about why he got into this work. In the, uh, he wrote it in the 1930s, but he got into it in the 1890s. Yeah. Yes. Yes. Did he, did he bring us fig trees? Did he bring fig? He did bring varieties of figs. I don't know if he brought the first fig trees, but when he was in the Middle East, yeah, he was after dates. He looked at figs. The problem with introducing a lot of these things was there were so many steps, right? So even if he picks out the perfect fig, clips a cutting, sends it, it arrives in Washington, it has to be inspected, it has to be sent over to an experiment station, then it has to be given to farmers. Farmers have no idea what to do, so they need some help growing a new crop, right? Then the farmers grow it, but the farmers are reluctant to grow something where there's no market. And people won't eat something if no one's growing it, right? So it's like this catch-22. And he always talked about the challenge, the, the two phases, introducing something successfully and then marketing it to get people to eat it. So he did introduce many fig varieties. I don't know how successful he was at the second stage of making it a crop that we all interact with every day. And I don't think figs are kind of a powerhouse crop that's, that's everywhere, right? Still not. Um, and that's probably for one of those reasons I mentioned that it just, it doesn't line up on one of those qualities, characteristics. Great question. Yes, sir. Is there anything native to North America, any fruits or vegetables? Corn maybe from? Um, not even corn. There are some, but corn is native to the kind of the north coast of, of South America and part of Central America. Um, there's a map that we ran in, in National Geographic maybe like three years ago that answers that exact question. Where did all our popular foods come from? I mentioned apples in Kazakhstan, citrus in China, bananas come from Papua New Guinea, right? grapes from the Caucasus of like Eastern Europe. So what comes from North America? Um, sunflowers, uh, pumpkins, cranberries, and some varieties of strawberries. That that's in our diet today. Now, there were many earlier crops that, that, like I said, Native Americans, but of the ones that are still produced today, those were the main ones. And, you know, pumpkins, we all interact with, but um, they're certainly not kind of an everyday kind of fruit. Pumpkins are fruits also, yeah. Yeah, but that's mostly it. There's a, it's kind of a, a longer answer, but mostly, yeah, everything in the market mostly comes from somewhere else. Fairchild referred to these plants as immigrants, plant immigrants. That same notion of America opening its arms and its doors and bringing in uh, botanical material that was cold and weary, right? That's how he thought of plants. Yeah. Other questions? Uh, so you said the um, three men that Fairchild hired to go explore what he couldn't. Um, you said they were looking for better wheat and better um, avocados. Do you think that his imports did so well because they were better products or because people were interested in things they don't know of, like um, like diversity, like things they don't know? You know what I mean? So why his, why his introductions did well? Yeah. Some did well and some didn't, right? Like things that did well were people, things that people could get their head around that didn't seem so foreign that, you know, like avocados, there were a couple varieties that existed in like Southern California that people had brought from their travels or whatnot. But it was a fruit that kind of seamlessly integrated into American culture. Same with wheat, it was very easy. Um, the things that, you know, Fairchild brought in some varieties of zucchini, and that didn't like catch quite as easily. Uh, and you could imagine why. But, um, but yeah, it's, it's things that, that integrated not just with American agriculture and climate, but also American culture. Things had to be novel and interesting and tasty, but not foreign and weird, right? And I think that's kind of still true for, you know, we, we're all, we all have open minds to an extent, right? If something's too crazy, you know, we'd rather go with what we know, yeah. Yes. Hello, thank Hi. you for sharing today. Oh, sure. um, I was curious about the interaction you explained with between the Japanese people and David Fairchild. Yeah. And you mentioned a little bit about the biological um, kind of ethics and consequences. And I was wondering if you could talk a little bit more about the cultural um, kind of negotiations and the power dynamics that were happening between David Fairchild and the people that he was interacting with in the local countries. 
Yeah, that's a great question. You know, he was going to these places, and with the exception of Corsica, where he was, he really stole right these these uh, material. After that, he gets into more of a diplomacy role, and he sees that question that's you know that that can be ethically ambiguous, right? I want to take something that is valuable to these people and introduce it to my country, but I want to do it in a way that's respectful. Um, there are questions about his ethics, but he was always interested in asking people for their agricultural advice, right? I'm an American, I want to introduce your plant, and I want to grow it, and I want your advice on how to do that. And some people kind of slammed the door in his face, but a lot of people said, wow, what an honor. And that was true with the Japanese, you know, they, they sensed an honor in America being interested in this. The subtext of the Japanese cherry blossom stories is this was also an era of kind of this cultural wariness, right, of, of both countries being, you know, not so culturally adaptable to each other. There were waves of immigrants, Japanese immigrants, to California, and there was anger, frustration about Japanese people taking American jobs. They don't, they don't know how to assimilate, right? We hear all these questions, and um, that, that was one of the reasons why when Fairchild said, well, what about trees, right? What if we import trees? And the Japanese people felt validated, but also the American people were agreeable because it wasn't a cultural clash. And I think you have a lot of these cultural clashes throughout history. Plants are somewhat exempt from them in some cases, right? We're willing to accept plants and we're willing to ship plants anywhere. But to your question, Fairchild was, was he was aware, I don't know if he was hyper aware, of the sense of exploitation, if there was any of that. But one of the, the postscripts of the cherry blossom episode is about 10 years after the cherry blossom trees were gifted here, the State Department decided to gift to the, to the Japanese people, reciprocate, um, a shipment of several thousand American dogwood trees that are still growing in, in Yokohama and Tokyo. Um, and after those trees, uh, a century after those trees were gifted, when Hillary Clinton was um, Secretary of State, she re-gifted another shipment of dogwood trees, just as this sense of America and Japanese botanical friendship. Yeah. Question in the back. Hi. Hi. Um, is this the Fairchild of Fairchild Gardens yes. in Florida? Yes. In South Florida? And the reason I don't often mention the gardens is because most people, certainly where I live and e maybe even up here, have not heard of the gardens. But uh, Fairchild, in his golden years, uh, essentially created a garden of tropical plants. He loved the tropics, right? After this spark of inspiration from this scientist when he was a young boy, he always loved the tropics. And so he started a tropical garden in Coral Gables, just outside of Miami. And it's been there, I think, about 85 years. Um, yeah, he started it in the, the 20, the 30s, I believe. Um, I was there last week. And yeah, they're great Fairchild enthusiasts. Uh, everyone there had heard of them because they're, they're involved in the garden. But it's very challenging to see tropical botany, of course, in the US. But that's the one place where you could see you know, orchids, um, you could see rambutans and durians and mangosteens all growing off trees, and it's, it's a really wonderful garden. And are they still importing different varieties and fruits and vegetables? And yeah, whatnot? is this work still being done? Yes, it is. The USDA still does this work. It's more targeted. It's more strategic. It's, uh, it's lower cost, and it's lower risk. Right, so you have scientists that you know communicate with other scientists on the other side of the world. They're not going and risking their lives on boats or on planes to try to march through jungles. That doesn't really happen anymore. Uh, we have time for just two more questions. Hi, Hi. I was wondering if um, after his work and his time, um, are there any critiques from environmental activists about how he's sort of transformed the American palate for um, a more global taste and how that's created demand for more um, for importations and, and, and transporting of foods, you know, emitting more carbon and, and taking people from eating locally, eating, eating what's, you know, uh, native to the, the local communities. Yeah, I was just wondering if there's any critiques. Um, I don't think he was that concerned about it because he was looking at 
diversity. He was looking at, you know, how can we enhance our economy? How can we grow our farms? In the decades and uh, the century after that, I think the notion of eating local is a pretty new idea, right? Probably within the past 50 years, probably even more recent. And that came from an abundance, right? Suddenly we had more fruits and vegetables, more farms growing more things than ever before. And it's you know reasonable to wonder how far are these things being shipped or do we really need strawberries you know, in the middle of December? And so those questions came up and I, I think that's just the natural cycle, the natural evolution of this kind of work. You try for so long to introduce an abundance and then suddenly there's all these questions about what do we do with so many things? But the notion of America's kind of food culture, I think we didn't have much of a food culture 150 years ago. And now most of our food is, you know, there's, there's very little sense of what is American food, right? We don't really have such a strong sense of that as in other countries who have been developing the, you know, their culinary palate for much longer. So I think, I think Fairchild would have found these debates to be natural and fun and interesting. But the notion of food miles, is that what you mentioned? About shipping things over far distances, I think he would have found that almost delightful because you know he would have said, look how far we've gotten with our food that now we don't even have to grow avocados or mangoes anymore. We can grow them in lower cost, cheaper labor markets and ship them at low costs and have them all year round. Yeah. Uh, last question, front row. Yes. Oh, the concept of putting a seed, a wheat seed, into the ground in the fall, is that winter wheat, that, that's called wintered wheat. Yeah. But seeing that we have a normal growing system in, in Russia, they have a really short one for their summer, did we get that idea, f and that's that seed from Russia, and why do we want to have winter wheat when we have a growing season for wheat? Good question. I'm, I wish I was an expert in wheat entirely. <laughs> I'm not. I, I don't know the mechanics of growing it, but... Wheat is native to Russia. I know that. Uh, I it did eventually. It did enough time back, um, and I don't know exactly winter wheat versus regular wheat how that differed. But it was probably seed breeding over time that resulted in the varieties we have here now that are different from winter wheat, that are different from Russian wheat. You know, there's all these differences. But eventually, far enough back, they all started with the same general grandparent. Yeah. Can we give it up for Dan? Thank you. Thank you.